Berkeley didn't know one step for another, and he couldn't care less either what the steps were. He was more interested in setting up his camera shots and bringing his visions to the screen. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's an eye-popping episode, which is a neat trick for a podcast. First, before there was psychedelia, there was Busby Berkeley. I talked to Jeffrey Spivak, author of Buzz, The Life and Art of Busby Berkeley. Then we get geeky with Jack Theakston, talking new 3D releases, Abbott and Costello in obscure color processes, and more. If you want movies to leap off your screen, the best way is by learning all about them at Nitrateville Radio. Be sure to subscribe at your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, 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 thanks. What vintage movie directors are still recognizable by their style to people today? Hitchcock, for sure, and I'd say DeMille. Capra, maybe. John Ford at times. But here's one most people might not even think of as a director, but they know the name. Jeffrey Spivak's Buzz, The Life and Art of Busby Berkeley, was acclaimed upon publication in 2011 for its picture of the exuberant art and troubled life of the king of eye-popping musical numbers. It was reissued in paperback last fall with a new foreword by University Press of Kentucky. I spoke with Jeffrey Spivak from his home in the Chicago suburbs and started by asking, Berkeley called himself a dance director, not a choreographer. Why? Well, back in those days, you know, in the early days of the musicals in the 30s, every studio had a choreographer, uh, a, a man whose job it was to teach the uh, choreens, the dancers, the actual steps of the number. Uh, Berkeley, 
you know, didn't know one step for another. And he couldn't care less either what the steps were. He was more interested in setting up his camera shots and bringing his visions to the screen. So if somebody were to ask him, Mr. Berkeley, do you want the dancers to come in here on the left and do a kick or come in from the right? He would say, I don't care. I'll position them where I want the camera to be. Let somebody else teach him the dance steps. <laughs> and so when you called him a choreographer, he would say, no, that's not me. You know, he was the one who uh, really bristled if you called him a choreographer. No, uh, he was a dance director. And uh, he his numbers were nominated uh, for Academy Awards. But, uh, you know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. He never won one himself. Right. But wasn't there a dance direction category after a certain point? No, I... there really wasn't. It okay. was usually so best musical number. Okay. So essentially something that was beyond choreographer. And I'm sure he, he liked being identified with directors rather than choreographer, mere choreographers. Oh, e even to this day, you know, uh, uh, I still see it. And, and I made notation of that in the paperback edition uh, of my book on uh, Busby Berkeley's biography uh, that even today, you know, uh, it's still, he's still referred to as a choreographer. I can understand that. It just isn't correct. Uh, yeah. like I said, it's an, it's a term he himself, uh, didn't, uh, agree with. Right. Yeah. The, the only, uh, dancer he was interested in was the camera. That's it. And he made the camera dance in an era where musical numbers usually had a stationary camera and the girls themselves were kind of far back. This is in, of course, the early days. And his uh, technique changed and evolved uh, throughout the 40s. But in those classical numbers of the 1930s for Warner Brothers, uh, he was uh, the only one of his kind to make uh, the camera really uh, sing and move on its own. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dig into how he became that. Um, oddly, it starts in World War One. Uh, and he's one of those guys who kind of has a good war. Uh, how did how did <laughs> Busby Berkeley come out of World War One as as a talent for Broadway and the movies? Ah, that's a good question. You know, one doesn't normally think of somebody in the trenches uh, <laughs> yeah. then going onto the Broadway stage, uh, certainly. But actually, it didn't begin in, in World War One. Uh, he was born to a theatrical family. Uh, his mother was uh, considered a grand dame of the theater uh, in the turn of the century, uh, late 1800s. Uh, so, and uh, eventually she wound up making uh, silent pictures as well. Uh, so Berkeley was born into that uh, family uh, of show people. His father was also a director uh, of stage musicals and stage plays. So he, you know, he got to be a, somewhat of a, an actor himself after he got out of the army. But once he was in the army, uh, you know, he wanted to see action uh, on the front lines. He never got a chance to. He came in a little too late for that. But he was involved in doing uh, uh, drilling for his soldiers. So he would uh, take hundreds of soldiers and put them through interested in marching uh, formations where they didn't even uh, sound off. They were silently drilled in all these different patterns. And someone would say, aha, maybe that's what uh, that correlates to his movie numbers with his Corrines and all those patterns. 
And that isn't really true, too. Uh, you know, I dispel a lot of myths in, in the right. book about his life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, of course, also took, uh, you know, high-flying, you know, airplanes and helicopters and oversaw the trenches and saw uh, patterns of young men uh, from a high vantage point. But that in itself was also not the key to his uh, later success. He really made it big, uh, first starting off as an actor. Uh, his mother kind of just you know, uh, poo-pooed the idea, didn't like the idea of her son going into this profession, but he did and eventually got into directing and going got into uh, directing musical numbers, uh, which led him to small theaters, then the Broadway stage, where he really could expand uh, his vision. And then somebody uh, suggested uh, and, and let Eddie Cantor know that a Broadway show of Whoopi in uh, Broadway was going to be filmed, and maybe Mr. Berkeley would like to come to California and, and direct something for the movies. And Berkeley said, nah, he just shook his head. Nah, Hollywood, California, they don't know how to do musicals out there. He <laughs> saw some of those early musicals where the camera just sits in one position, and the girls kind of dance left and dance right, and that's about it. There was no excitement. So Berkeley wasn't really interested, but got talked to and talked into it, said, come on, Buzz, come out to California Weather is nice. You'll like it out there. And who knows, you might like the movie business. So he thought he'd give it a try. Uh, he got his first film uh, for Whoopi, in which he directed his own inimitable style. Uh, people were saying, Mr. Berkeley, don't you want all these camera placements around the, the set here for your first picture? He says, no, that's not how I do it. As if he's bragging, as if he had a lot of experience in the <laughs> right. motion picture business. But he really didn't. He says, no, let's do it one camera. Let's get the shot and then move the camera. Let's get another shot. All doing it with one camera, a technique that he started and he kept on with it for his entire career, shooting with a single camera. Yeah. Now, you know, I saw it would be some years ago. I mean, really, it's kind of all there. And yet it's three years before uh, 42nd Street comes along. And then suddenly the Busby Berkeley thing happens in a big way. Um what do you think? I mean, why didn't Whoopi lead to everybody, you know, being excited about these interesting, you know, formations on stage and all that kind of stuff? Uh, well, it, it did somewhat, but not to, to the extent that, say, 42nd Street did, but it did lead him to other projects, uh, especially ones with uh, Eddie Cantor. And those pictures, uh, did get some excitement. Uh, the name Busby Berkeley still wasn't embedded in the public's consciousness at that point. But Daryl Zanuck, who at the time was uh, the head of production at Warner Brothers, did see those Eddie Cantor uh, musical numbers that Berkeley directed and invited him on to, uh, to do 42nd Street because the film 42nd Street was really going to be a dramatic picture with no musical numbers. Because by around 1933, uh, musicals had kind of lost favor with the public, so much so that uh, even theater owners in those years would put a placard in front of their theater saying, our current attraction is not a musical. Not a musical. Was, <laughs> yeah. They didn't want to do that. So they kind of took a chance, uh, Zanuck did on Berkeley. He knew he had talent, but the idea of putting another musical out there was kind of iffy then. Yeah, you don't think about it now, how the big success that 42nd Street had, but they were taking a chance. But uh, once those musical numbers came on the screen and then the title number ended the picture, 
Uh, Berkeley's <clears throat> career could not be denied. And he was signed on to a longer term contract at Warner Brothers. And that led to his next picture and started off uh, what would say a real career after the Eddie Cantor pictures. Yeah, you know, I just rewatched it the other night. And it's interesting, just at the beginning, the hoofing that they're rehearsing on stage is so lame. It's so stereotypical. <laughs> and it just gives you no idea of what's going to come in the movie. Of course, they save all the, the good stuff for close to the end. Um and don't want to give away what you're going to see. I mean, you never see anything like like the train set that's like one of the numbers or any of that. I mean, you never see any of that stuff under construction or anybody practicing on it. You just have no preparation at all for what's coming. Certainly not then. And audiences were mystified by it. Uh, you know, you, you he really broke the proscenium and put the camera in places that no audience could ever certainly be. In. Right, yeah. And uh, it, it was that kind of thing. Like I said, Dad, you're right. They did say, those audi the audiences then had no idea what they were in for. But after about four or five pictures, just the name Busby Berkeley sure. uh, got them salivating. They knew what they were in for when that name came up during the credits. You know, looking at his his subsequent career, I mean, it seems like something that could have faded very quickly. Um, and obviously, he's associated with a certain period. You know, by the end of his life, he's doing No No Nanette, and he's very much associated with an early 30s idea of film, uh, you know, the film musical. But... Um, I don't know. Audiences seemed seemed to go for it for a long time, and it kept him going even when he was pretty much of a mess as a human being, uh, you know, in terms of his <laughs> career and personal life. Why were people so excited about that for so long? Uh, well, his kind of uh, musical number for those early Warner Brothers pictures uh, served a limited time. Uh, in fact, he did have personal personal problems, and he was on trial for murder. Right. Uh, that kept him out of the director's chair. And uh, around that time, mid-30s, musical numbers started changing uh, into the Fred Astaire um, model of musical numbers, where the camera wasn't shooting up 60 feet above a uh, cavern or soundstage. They were giving Fred Astaire the full, you know, you could see him from top to bottom and see his footwork and that kind of thing, where the dancer was the star of the movie, not the director behind it. So Berkeley, you know, still had talent, although his type of musical had changed. And then he had really started off a second career uh, when he left Warner Brothers and went to MGM and started working in the what was turned out to be very popular uh, uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney numbers uh, yeah. in which he directed. So th those were a second kind of career. And then he had a third career uh, after some other personal personal problems, rather. And uh, wound up uh, directing to, at MGM uh, in the 1950s, where he made some very interesting musical numbers. And uh, by that time, and then when the 60s came around, he was all but kind of like a, a, a recluse, uh, a name out of the past. And uh, he was brought back to Broadway for No No Nonette, and uh, in which uh, his old star Ruby Keeler uh, was making her uh, return to the Broadway stage. And so he was used for his nostalgia uh, name alone, 
Uh, he really didn't have much to do uh, with No No Nanette, but it was a career that really didn't end at Warner Brothers. And indeed, it went on and he saw some great heights. And he actually said his greatest film that he ever directed was uh, For Me and My Gal with Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. Not a musical, uh, although it did have some musical numbers in it. But uh, he looked at hit that film as his finest work, not the stuff, not the gold diggers pictures uh, from the 1930s. Uh, although that's what he's most remembered for, uh, for good reason. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, you know, he he works with Kelly right at the start of his career. You know, Kelly, yeah. someone who's not exactly known for his lack of ego himself. And <laughs> yet somehow, you know, they seem like they're destined for an epic clash, but they actually seem to get along pretty well. And Kelly felt like he learned a lot from working with Berkeley. Uh, that is true. Yeah. You know, there were some, you know, there are quotes on the record that uh, Kelly and Berkeley didn't necessarily get along, especially when Berkeley was directing, but didn't do the musical numbers directed the take me out to the ball game, uh, that Gene Kelly starred in. And, and by the time uh, they kind of rubbed each other the wrong way, Gene had, of course, obviously had his own ideas for how musical numbers should be. And obviously was, uh, you know, had great success with it. Uh, but that time in the late 40s, Berkeley was all but, uh, you know, a burned out uh, director who would take any any job that came to him. But, uh, yes, he gave, you know, give Berkeley credit uh, for bringing Gene Kelly to the screen in his first film. Uh, and then later on, uh, you know, after time and time does heal all wounds uh, back when Berkeley was being honored, uh, Gene Kelly had nothing but nice things to say. Uh, and he showed, you know, he said something to, you know, if you wanted to see what can be done with a movie camera, look at everything that Busby Berkeley directed. Yeah. So uh, Gene Kelly, uh, you know, ended his life with nice words said about <laughs> Berkeley. And Berkeley, to his credit, never had a bad word on the record about anyone in Hollywood. He really, he just wasn't that type of a person. Uh, he, he just, you know, he, he had no bitterness, but he always was available for working and he would be working into his 70s if only someone would have given him a shot, but uh, it didn't work out that way in his career. Yeah. Um, well, let's back up a little bit. We kind of jumped to his, uh, you know, to the dramatics or melodramatics of his later days. Um, so I had no idea he directed a little bit of the wizard of Oz. How did I not know that all these years? <laughs> uh, you probably wouldn't know it because nobody would talk about it. And those scenes were never seen. <laughs> The scene that he did, which was uh, If I Only Had a Brain uh, Number with Ray Bolger, uh, you know, it's part of, uh, I think, all new DVD or Blu-ray releases of The Wizard of Oz. So it's available. You can see it. And I think, I wouldn't be surprised, it's available on YouTube as well. It's extended number. Uh, Berkeley directed it. He came over to MGM at that time. He had left Warner Brothers in the late 30s, 1939 was his last film for them, and then went right over, you know, down the road. Uh, to MGM, where he was offered a position. And uh, they gave him some initial work and said, why don't you, you know, do something here with The Wizard of Oz? He had some great ideas. His number is kind of manic and crazy. Uh, one Only Wonders and uh, Victor Fleming, the director of The Wizard of Oz, after seeing what Berkeley had done, uh, said, Buzz, you should have directed the entire picture. And one could only imagine right. what The Wizard of Oz might have turned out with Busby Berkeley at the helm. Uh, just think of uh, when Berkeley directed The Gang's All Here in the 1940s. <laughs> right. I mean, he was still full of ideas 
and uh, really contemporary uh, musical numbers that he'd be directing. So, yes, he really did work on The Wizard of Oz, and the number was shortened, uh, of course, by the time the film was released. But you still can't see the uncut Berkeley version on uh, on you know on websites and Blu-ray releases of the film. Uh, yeah, that's that's funny to think of all the all the might have bens about Wizard of Oz. You know, it could have been W. C. Fields, Shirley Temple, and Busby Berkeley yep. directing it all. What an what an odd alternate universe <laughs> that is. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing you know, you mentioned that he he directed dramatic things. I think that's something that's not particularly well known that he he actually. You know, it wasn't all musicals all the time. He directed a number of uh, dramatic films. My wife has real affection for something that I recognize as kind of schmaltzy, which is Comet over Broadway with with Kay Francis. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know, probably his best dramatic, you know, purely non-musical film is what? They Made Me a Criminal? I mean, that seems like a good candidate to me with John Garfield. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned Common Over Broadway. Uh, I, I remember speaking with Sybil Jason, who played the young daughter in the film. And I was asking her about the film because I wanted to get her recollections about working with Berkeley. And uh, just interesting how, how actors don't see uh, the films like other people see them. But I asked her about Comet Over Broadway. And she said, oh, that film was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean just because your wife likes it doesn't right. necessarily mean the stars that were in it liked it. But uh, yes, and she said that Berkeley was a great help uh, to her uh, for acting because, yeah, he did work. Uh, you know, he made dramatic films, too, and was a damn good director at it. Uh, so. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, he, he made films that were not necessarily musicals and uh, uh, was a great director uh, at them. Yeah, that's interesting that he he seemed to have built-in talent for doing things that way. And so that's why he had a career that other major stage uh, directors of the time, you know, they think of somebody like John Murray Anderson, who only did i think king of jazz you know they never had the desire or the particular talents to become film directors you know they're they're happy staging spectacles for the stage yeah you couldn't pigeonhole berkeley because he berkeley wanted to do drama he wanted to do other things and he would do it as long as they you know a producer or somebody would ask him to do it so yeah. he, he wouldn't turn down work he would take whatever's offered and if that meant doing the musical numbers or uh, relenting or, say, or standing back and let somebody else do the musical numbers and he'll direct uh, the dramatic part of the story, he would do that uh, without complaint. He just uh, he liked working and he was uh, he you know, his thing was, you know, bring the picture on time and under budget. That's how you keep working in Hollywood or certainly back in those days. And that's what he prided himself on. So he was tough to his, to his actors in order to get them to get the job done and bring that picture in uh, on time and under budget. So they say he was tough, uh, tough taskmaster. That is true, but only because the greater good was to get the picture uh, under budget. Yeah, no, there's a lot of stories in your book about you know the uh, crew finally walking off when it gets to be three a.m. and they're they've been working since nine in the morning. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, now, I mean, let's let's go to, you know, the, the flip side of his getting things done on time was that he was such a personal mess. Um, there was the big, <laughs> yeah. the big car accident in what 1936, I think, um, 
Yeah, 35. You know, 35, where multiple people were killed because he was drunk driving. As some, a habit he did not ever entirely give up, except maybe when he finally married his sixth wife, the stable one. It only took him six to get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, tell me about that, that whole business. You know, yeah, he was a drinker, but, uh, you know, he certainly wasn't the only one. And uh, in those days, you know, yeah, that, you know, it was, it was standard, you know, for a lot of people in Hollywood. And Berkeley himself was just at one of those Hollywood parties, uh, a lot of stars there. Uh, he liked to go to those because the cameras were kept away and people could speak freely. And uh, yes, he, uh, he had quite a few drinks. Was he drunk uh, on the night of the famous car accident? Nobody knows for sure, nor was he arrested for that, uh, for drinking. Uh, because uh, in those days, the, the law was if you committed a car accident uh, and, and drinking was the cause uh, and people died as a, 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 as, you know, as a result of it, uh, in that case, you would be tried for manslaughter, which Berkeley should have been tried for manslaughter. And he probably would be going to jail uh, had he been tried for that offense. But the judge in the trial didn't love these Hollywood big shots. He didn't like them. He didn't like the fact that, you know, through their influence, their power or their wealth, they got to skate on a lot of legal things. So in this case, innocent people died in, in the result of a car accident where the driver might have been drunk. Uh, it was not disproved. But the fact is that the judge himself upped uh, the accusation to Busby Berkeley to second degree murder. Now, second degree murder is really like first degree murder without the intent. Had he been convicted of that, he would have served hard time for a long time. So he got a excellent lawyer back then in the thirties. And the lawyers basically, uh, you know, said, yes, true. It's much more difficult to convict somebody in a car accident of, of murder than it is of manslaughter. And so three trials later, he was eventually uh, acquitted of the crime. Uh, he had to pay, uh, there were some payouts of cash uh, to the families, um, uh, people that, uh, the families of the people that died in the accident. And like I said, his career all but came to a halt at the height of his career. And so when he got back to work, uh, slowly but surely, the studio heads were very sympathetic and they gave him some, you know, jobs, but it was nothing like the, his uh, highlight of a couple of years earlier. And so by the time 1939 rolled around, uh, they made me a criminal, which is the last thing he did. And then Warner Brothers decided not to renew Busby Berkeley's contract. And so he went over to MGM where a second phase of his career started. But back then, that's what happened. He was, you know, it, it was uh, stories that made the headlines from coast to coast. And Busby Berkeley was the guy, you know, who supposedly killed these people. And so he had uh, terrible publicity to deal with. But the fact is, he was later found acquitted after his third trial. Uh, they were kind of hung juries for the first two trials. And that's what happened. It, uh, you know, it couldn't happen to a, uh, at a worse time in his career. Uh, maybe if he wasn't drunk, maybe uh, his car wouldn't have drifted over into the oncoming lane of the car he hit, but maybe it had nothing to do with it. He was driving. He, I mean, his tire on his car blew out 
Uh, and, you know, if a tire blows out at high speed, he was turning his steering wheel left and right. I wrote like an oarsman in, in a torrential rainstorm. Right. You know, the, yeah. he, couldn't get, he couldn't grab hold and straighten out his car. Uh, is that liquor related? Uh, not necessarily. And, and so the tire itself, and I have actual photographs of the car, although it was not, the publisher didn't want to include it in the book, but uh, I, I've seen what the car looked like. And, you know, it, it could be related to drinking, maybe not, but it, it certainly was never proven as such. And so uh, eventually he, he was acquitted. And then, I mean, he was, he was uh, fodder for Luella Parsons in particular, uh, because of his tendency to, you know, suddenly have someone he was about to marry out of nowhere, pretty much. Um, he just, uh, you know, picked him out of a chorus line and, and was about to marry them at that point. And then, I mean, in the forties, he really had a crack up, uh, attempted suicide and, and all this stuff. Yes. He, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, uh, when we started talking, Mike, about uh, his mother, the grand dame of the theater. Uh, his mother was really, you know, he was a mama's boy uh, in many, many respects. Uh, even his wives, he was saying, you know, yeah, he's always going back to mama. Mama's always, you know, first in his heart, never his wives. Well, you know, and, and his, you know, he, uh, I've been to the house, the mansion uh, that he purchased in the 1930s. Uh, his mother was in a wheelchair. And he created a ramp down to the basement where he had a projection room. And she was there. She was his confidant. She was his number one supporter in life. The wives, you know, they came and went. In fact, Berkeley said, <laughs> sometimes I can't even remember all their names you know, of all his wives, which is a true story. They might have come and gone, but mother was always there until mother wasn't in the 1940s. Right. When she passed away, Berkeley was at a particular low time in his life and his career, and uh, such everything weighed on him. And in a in a town like Hollywood, where everything is measured on success, failure really, uh, you know, uh, separates you uh, from the rest of the people you work with. And so he, you know, on top of failure and mother passing away, he did attempt suicide and was in an institution somewhat until he recovered. And, you know, his friends in the business that he had, the long-term friends like Mervyn Leroy, uh, slowly got him back in the movie business. And although he never reclaimed, of course, what he did in, in uh, Warner Brothers or the early days of MGM, uh, he could never do it. He was, uh, you'll see his name in, uh, credited to uh, a number of pictures in the early 50s. And there are some real surprises uh, with uh, with Esther Williams movies where Berkeley did some tremendous musical numbers and a film called Small Town Girl, uh, which has terrific musical numbers in them. Uh, so slowly but surely, he was back in the business and, uh, you know, but never the big name he was in the past. In fact, there was an already, by the 1950s, there was a new generation that had been born who had never heard of Busby Berkeley. And it wasn't until really the late 1960s uh, on college campuses where they would have those midnight movies and they'd bring back some of these old things from the Warner Brothers days, uh, the Gold Diggers pictures, and a whole new generation of viewers uh, got to see uh, what Busby Berkeley meant uh, to the motion picture business. So, yes, he, had, uh, he did have a, a horrible, uh, what would be considered a nadir uh, of his life uh, at the time his mother's passing. Uh, eventually, he pulled himself out and and did marry uh, 
the sixth and final wife, which was the best marriage of his life, as he often admitted. He kind of reminded me of Buster Keaton in the, you know, not least because he could, couldn't remember all his wives, but uh, he, uh, you know, he did get that that moment at the end in kind of the nostalgia craze of the sixties where he was, you know, recognized and lionized for these things that, you know, by that point were so out of their time that they, you know, just kind of amazed people. Cause you know, how could anybody do that? It just, you know, you talk about him going to see hair and say, yeah, you know what that needs is, is some, uh, overhead shots of people making geometric you know, shapes and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, a clash of two cultures there for sure. But, you know, he, he does get that sort of heartwarming moment. Uh, even though no, 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 that was kind of a fiasco from his point of view, he got a lot of credit and recognition for being part of it. Um, even when they didn't really use him that much. Uh, that's true. And, you know, and interestingly that no, 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 came right at that craze, that nostalgia craze of the late sixties. So the name Busby Berkeley came up and the idea of, Hey, let's bring this old classic musical that had the song T for two. Right. And we got Ruby Keeler and Ruby is saying, how about my old friend, Buzz Berkeley? And, uh, you know, they called him up and he wasn't all that interested. And then Ruby kind of talked him into it. And then she got kind of cold feet and he talked her into it. And it's, come on, let's put on a show again. This time for real life, they really yeah. put on a show. Uh, Berkeley himself, though, uh, you know, really didn't have much to do. They used him for his name value and little alone. He was an elderly gentleman then. So he really, you know, I, I've seen footage of him uh, on the set and uh, and talking with some of the chorus girls but they looked at him as some older grandfatherly type and they didn't know what he meant to motion pictures because there wasn't access to these old films like there is today. There was right. no Turner classic movies. So, you know, but like I said, the name Busby Berkeley evoked something in the, in New York audiences back then, especially the older ones who who do remember the name. And so for nostalgia value alone, and it was really nostalgia was big in the seventies. In fact, uh, life magazine had a full cover story. Uh, about nostalgia uh, coming back, uh, me and specifically referring to No No Nanette. And uh, that was it. And, you know, Ruby Keeler kind of brought, you know, came back on there. And uh, and Berkeley was then feted at sp- film festivals around the world uh, where they brought his uh, stuff back. I live in the Chicago area, as as you know, as you do. And Berkeley was a uh, guest at the Chicago International Film Festival in the 1960s. Uh, he was here and they had uh, was three hours of clips of Busby Berkeley musicals. Now it's enough to make anyone dizzy, <laughs> including Roger Ebert, the film critic at the time, who admitted Berkeley's greatness. Also admitted that all, uh, seeing all his films like that was extremely tiring. Right, <laughs> and I can understand that. I mean, they're taken out of context. One phenomenal musical number after another. I mean, it's it's almost like sitting at a banquet and stuffing yourself. Enough right. was enough. So, but he was here, and he and he did make the rounds. Yes, and I have to tell you, it still is a thing. Uh, there are interested parties in Hollywood that are at this very moment. Uh, planning to option the book for motion picture consideration. It, it was such a, in, in a 2014 when Warner Brothers had contacted me. And at the time they wanted uh, Ryan Gosling to do it. And uh, 
web pages around the world. All you have to do is search for Ryan Gosling and Busby Berkeley or Ryan Gosling and my name, and you'll see plenty of stories at the time where Gosling was really interested in playing the role. He still may get it, but there are other people involved here. So there still may be uh, a Busby Berkeley biopic at a theater or a downloading site near you in the future. Buzz, The Life and Art of Busby Berkeley is available now from University Press of Kentucky. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. No picture has been more eagerly awaited. It couldn't be made till the perfect star was found. But who will portray the gallant and heroic Jack? Only one actor has the bearing, the stature, the Olympian fortitude. And here he is. We gotta save her. You're right. The There's the castle. Come on. I... What am I doing? Go ahead. Yes, here are all the wonders of the story every mother has told her child, and every child will tell his children. The magic beanstalk, the enchanted forest, the fearsome giant, and all the marvels of his castle with Abbott and Costello at their hilarious best in a laugh-loaded, song-sprayed adventure into Never Never Land that you'll ever remember. Man, trailers really used to know how to sell, didn't they? Abbott and Costello's Jack and the Beanstalk from 1952 and coming July 26 from Classic Flicks is the latest project of the 3D film archive, which is to say our friends Bob Fermanek and Jack Theakston. It's not in 3D, but some of the other things they'll be releasing in the near future will be, and Jack and the Beanstalk has its own movie technology story to tell, as we'll find out when I welcome back one of our favorite experts on geeky cinema processes and restorations, Jack Theakston. Hello, Jack. How are you? Good to be here, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me on the podcast yet again. Well, tell me what you're working on these days with the 3D film archive, including actual 3D, I understand. Uh, yes, um, I've been talking to Bob Fermanek, my business partner, about this and keep telling him we really need to change the name of the company because we don't <laughs> just do 3D. Yeah. Uh, not anymore, anyway. Um, we've got a bunch of stuff coming up in the next year that's really exciting. Uh, our next release that is due out in July from Classic Flicks is uh, a restoration that has taken over two years to mount of Abbott and Costello's first color feature, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk from 1952. Now, you've talked about this a bit on Nitrateville, but yeah, it was so it was Cinecolor and not in the greatest shape, or anyone's seen it in decent shape for a long time. Tell me, tell me about all that. Well, I don't think anyone has seen it in anything what you could call a decent shape since it came out in 1952. Uh, the film was released through Warner Brothers, although it was a Lou Costello production, so he retained the rights to it. And in the late 50s, 
59, Lou died. And in the early 60s, it was sold to uh, RKO General for uh, both a limited black and white theatrical release and television distribution. And at about that point, the original camera negative was lost in a flood. And then the color separations that were used to make the film uh, disappeared. So fast forward to uh, the 70s. The uh, copyright on the film was not renewed or was incorrectly renewed. And so it's essentially a PD film and everyone gets wind of this. And the only thing that's left to distribute the film in color are original prints. And of course, as anyone who has worked with prints from the 1950s knows, you're getting it at the end of the run and they aren't in such great condition. And in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, Bob Fermanek uh, found a really solid print and worked with some other prints and made a laser disc, uh, I believe it was for Image, which was sort of the last stop for that film at that point. And all of the, uh, or I shouldn't say all, but most of the standard depth transfers that you see out there are more or less ripped off from his uh, release because the film is PD, of course. Sure. A few years ago, we were talking about this and a, uh, a print had surfaced in a collector's hands and we got hold of this and uh, decided let's make a stab at really trying to do this right. Um, all the stars aligned as far as our scanning facilities and our cleanup and all that. We've gotten to be a pretty well-oiled machine here as far as doing restoration work. And after a bit of digging, a bit of talking, uh, speaking to people at archives, we ended up with somewhere in the ballpark of about five or six prints. And they were all in various conditions and all of them were incomplete in one way or another, but we knew that Frankensteining them together, we could make one really great looking transfer of the film. So we scanned everything in at 4k and just went to town on it and, and started putting it together. Now, what does Cinecolor at this point typically look like? I mean, earlier it was very red and blue, which isn't necessarily bad. I've seen some Westerns that look really nice that way, you know, sort of pushing their aesthetic to use what it has. Uh, this is a fantasy film, so I'm assuming it's a lot more colorful. Well, this is actually super Cinecolor, <laughs> which is their uh, next process after their original. Uh, the original Cinecolor was more or less based on the two color processes that you see in the 1920s, specifically uh, Prisma and Multicolor, where they used uh, a double-sided film stock called Duplitize stock. And it was a strip of film base, you know, nitrate base, and had emulsions on both sides of the film. And they would photograph the uh, subject through a camera that was actually running two strips of film in it at once. And the front was sensitive to only green and blue light. And it also had a red dye on it, which acted as a filter for the strip behind it, which was sensitive to all light. So when you photograph something, you get the front strip would record the blue green light. 
And then because of the red dye that was impregnated in the negative film, the, the, uh, the strip behind it would photograph only red light. So you had two color records to work with. And then they would uh, sandwich these onto this duplicatized film and print it. So you'd have two emulsions with two different images. They were the same image, but they had slightly different contrasts to them because of the colored light. And then they would take that and they would float them along these very long tanks. They were about um, 50 feet long that had dye toners in them. And they would replace the silver particles with red dye. And then they'd flip the film over and then do the same thing and replace the silver particles on the other side with blue dye. So what you would get would be uh, like basically a blue green on white or a red on white image and then stacked on top of each other because of the way they were printed, you'd get a two color image. Yeah, I remember Eric Grayson saying one time that uh, because the image is essentially on both sides of the piece of film, God himself could not uh, totally focus Cinecolor at that point. Depends on what lens you're using. You know, if you have something that has a wide aperture, you're going to get a wider focal length in the uh, or a wider depth of field in the gate on the projector. So on those old uncoated lenses from the 30s and 40s, yeah, probably not so great. But I mean, honestly, I've run enough 35 millimeter Cinecolor prints to tell you that the, the focus issue is negligible. Okay. Probably more difficult with uh, Cinecolor prints is Sometimes the registration is off, especially on 16 millimeter prints. They had a very higher quality control for 35 millimeter prints. But if you've seen like 16 millimeter Cinecolor prints, sometimes they can almost look like an anaglyph 3D where the registration <laughs> is so off. You know, you, you're wondering whether you should have glasses. Right. <laughs> but, the, uh, but then moving forward to what happened with Abbott and Costello in the late 40s, uh, Cinecolor had a process already lined up that sort of expanded upon this idea of using two-sided stock, duplicated stock. Uh, but the problem was there was no way to photograph practically uh, all three colors, red, green, and blue, sep separated. And um, they had to wait until 1948 when Eastman Color first started rolling out and which really didn't roll out completely until 1951. And what happened was uh, both Eastman Kodak and Technicolor, which was Cinecolor's rival at the time, uh, had a backdoor deal. And what happened was Technicolor had a very specific patent that they owned uh, that was given to the patent office after Kodachrome had been submitted to the patent office, but it was accepted before the Kodachrome patent happened. And this was called the Trollin patent. And Kodak was kind of at a, a stalemate with them because Technicolor bought all their supplies and their film stock from Kodak. And Kodak wanted to go into 35 millimeter Kodachrome. And Technicolor didn't like this idea. So they said, all right, we'll do a deal. You can do 16 millimeter home movie Kodachrome. And you can also produce 35 millimeter Kodachrome. 
but we're going to be the only people that are allowed to have it. We're going to call it monopack. So Technicolor gets this 35 millimeter single strip color film. And in addition, Kodak gets to do just the 16 millimeter market and Technicolor stays out of the 16 millimeter market. And Kodak sells Technicolor their film. So it's a win-win situation. Well, by 1948, these patents had expired. And so they had no reason to keep this, this deal going. And on top of it, the Supreme Court had opened up a case against them. Uh, Eastman Kodak figures out, let's, let's see if we could sidestep having to do the, Kodak, the whole uh, Kodachrome thing, because that's impractical. And they start working on what are called dye couplers, which means when certain colors of light are exposed to certain grains of silver on the film, those are connected to, um, I'm going to simplify this for the listeners, pellets of, of colored dye that when they're developed, kind of open up and release dye, and then the silver is stripped out. And what all you're left with are little dye splotches that are so small, uh, they're imperceivable by the naked eye, even when they're projected on the screen, but what you and I would call grain and put together with red, uh, green and blue dyes, or rather, I'm sorry, cyan, magenta and yellow dyes, they come together to form color. So in 51, Eastman color is now ready for prime time. Uh, Kodak starts putting it out. Uh, it has its own issues though. It's not really ready for prime time in that whenever they need to do an optical, that is to say, whenever they need to go to a third generation to do a dissolve or a wipe or any sort of special effect, anything that's not contact printed from the camera negative, they have to go through this ridiculous system of RGB separations and then do the optical and then recomposite them on Eastman color stock. And it generally looked terrible. Even by 50s optical standards, it looked it looked bad. Yeah, pretty bad. I mean, color opticals were a big setback for film. Uh, they'd gotten black and white opticals down pretty well. Uh, you look at some of the early titles, you don't see that typical like pop before it dissolved that you see in, for example, 1930s films, early 1930s films. Yeah. Because they, they'd gotten these fine grain black and white stocks down so refined. Uh, they're nearly imperceivable if, if they're done well. Now, when I was doing the Abbott and Costello show, those were not good opticals, and you could tell every time. <laughs> yeah. Cinecolor comes out with this process. They call it Super Cinecolor. It's now a three-color process where they do exactly what they were doing before, except they change the colors. Now, instead of red, it's magenta. Now, instead of blue cyan or blue-green, it's a, it's a spectral cyan. It's one that's specifically made for three-color printing. And then they have a process where they resensitize the blue side and expose it once more, and the latent silver that's left in the emulsion still forms yet another layer, which is then double-toned yellow. So you have yellow and cyan uh, colors on one side, and you have magenta on the other. So how does it look compared to Technicolor at that point? It's got its own color space. It's quite weird. You know, you're doing this by making color separation positives and then negatives. So the end print is about three generations away from the camera negative in total. So it is very grainy. It can be very contrasty. And then there's a heavy emphasis on blue, which doesn't help because they discovered quite quickly that uh, the yellow layer on the film 
when stuck in front of uh, carbon arc lamp houses, which put out a ton of ultraviolet light, uh, eventually starts to degrade a little bit. So if you look closely on some of these prints, especially with the aperture plate removed, or if you're looking at it on a scan, you can actually see where these uh, projectors had just been sitting forever running the film because there's all sort of this blue box in the middle of the picture. Right. <laughs> but generally, it's a very pleasing spectrum. Uh, again, the blue is a, a real uh, eye popper. I would say like the Cinecolor blue is... Uh, for those of you who have seen dye transfer Technicolor prints, very similar to the way red pops on Technicolor prints. And we know the little kitties will appreciate all of this hard work on <laughs> on Super Cinecolor. Naturally. Um, tell, tell me about the movie itself. This was their first truly independent production. As, as, that is to say, Costello was producing the film. Bud produced the next color film that they did, Abdin Costello meet Captain Kid. They were trying to get away in this film from a lot of the wordplay that they were kind of famous for and, and definitely trying to stay away from the slapstick stuff because by 1952, the both of them were getting on in years. Uh, Lou was, I believe, in his late 40s. Bud was in his 50s. Lou had had uh, several bouts of rheumatic fever and other health issues. Bud had some health issues. They were starting to get old and they wanted to try something different. And so this was a great possibility for them. The story goes that uh, Chris Costello, Lou's youngest daughter, was reading Jack and the Beanstalk with him. And it came to him that, hey, this might be a great vehicle for Abbott and me. So they went forward, started doing the production. Um, they overshot by quite a bit. In fact, one of the special features on our disc, and it's a real special features loaded disc, is a great documentary with Ron Palumbo about the making of the film. And we have not only dozens of photos from deleted scenes from the film, we actually have a short 90-second piece of camera negative, Eastman color camera negative, that somehow survived of one of the cutscenes from the film, although it's missing the audio. And uh, it's after the restoration, I found myself to really appreciate this film greatly. It's a lot more clever than I think most Abbott and Costello fans or people in general give it credit for. And I think the problem in the past, and we had the same issue with another restoration of an Abbott and Costello film we did, Africa Screams, is that because the film has been out in such poor quality, and especially the audio, people sort of dismiss it because they're missing something. There's a, a layer of grime yeah. <laughs> that uh, is kind of hurting the film. So when that's removed, it actually comes out to be a much better film than even I was giving it credit for, and that's going into this project. Yeah, it's amazing when you can see something and hear something, how good it can be. Yeah, absolutely. I was just watching the other day, for example, uh, the 1930s Paramount version of uh anything goes the prints that have been circulating on that film for years are really really bad and i think it was universal did this transfer and whoever did the audio uh, whoever did the track really uh should get full marks because they really picked up the full range that was on that optical track at the point 
and the performances are so much more enjoyable because of it. Well, yeah, tell me about some of the extras, uh, as you say, of extra heavy discs. Uh, we are chalk-loaded with them. Uh, the first thing that I think most fans would be most interested in seeing is there's a 45-minute trailer uh, gallery that we've put together of all of the Abbott and Costello trailers that are currently not out there. Uh, Universal did a box set several years ago. They had trailers for most of them, but not all of them. And there are a few stragglers here and there. There are also a number of them on that set that were textless. They were missing the, the text overlays. So we went back to original prints and scanned those, and those are on there as well. And they all look great. We scanned them all in 4K. Uh, there's a documentary about Cinecolor on there, which is sort of an expanded version of what we just spoke about that I did. Uh, I have a bunch of clips from different Cinecolor and Super Cinecolor films. Uh, there is a 10-minute segment from a 1953 Colgate Comedy Hour where, for the first time, anybody saw them. Anybody saw it was the, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon was introduced on their show. They do a sketch in a, in a universal prop warehouse and Frankenstein is there and uh, it was played by, by Glenn Strange. And you can see some of the costumes from uh, Abner and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the background. And so we did a, a restoration off the original kinescope of that. And of course, back in those days, the video would have looked like actual video, which is to say uh, 30 frames a second or 60 hertz. Uh, the kinescope was at 24 frames a second, so we uh, added an extra process to it to kind of make it look back like video again. And we've got two docs by uh, Ron Palumbo, who is the co-author of Abbott and Costello in Hollywood with Bob Firmnick, which is, in my opinion, the last word on the stories behind the films that they made. Uh, he's, he's done a behind-the-scenes doc, which I told you about. And he also did a great little mini doc about the tour for the film. They, they went on tour to promote the film in at least a dozen cities. We have newsreel footage of at least two of those and photographs from the rest. And the whole story is there. Uh, there's a audio commentary with uh, Ron. And he brings on also as well uh, David Stollery who is in the film. He's the, uh, the, the child actor that's in the uh. sepia sequences. And so he talks about his memories about someone of, of being on the set. Um, Chris Costello was involved. She shares her memories. Um, I know I'm going to forget a few more. We've got some photo galleries. There's a 1940s Rudy Valley show with Abbott and Costello where they're doing Jack and the Beanstalk before this was even an idea. Huh. And, uh, yeah, there's a ton of great special features on there. So even if you're an Abbott and Costello fan who perhaps isn't a fan of the movie itself, you won't want to miss this because the price of admission is worth it alone for the special features. Well, and you said there's a uh, version of Who's On First that has not been seen before yeah, or yeah. in a long uh, time. In, in uh, 1940 or 41, uh, some newsreel photographers went to a uh, Southern California, I think it was Southern California uh, base where they were performing. And this is a very early uh, recording of them doing who's on first, actually maybe the first recording of them on film doing who's on first. 
that survives. We know they did a a version of it in 1938 for a Warner Brothers screen test, but that still has not uh, surfaced. So that'll be something else that most people have not seen. And then that's not all we have for Abbott and Costello fans, right? Yes. Um, we are gearing up. Actually, we're doing it right now, but we're gearing up for another great Kickstarter campaign uh, where we're going to do the second season of the Abbott and Costello TV show. The first season was released uh, just last year in December through Classic Flicks. It's still available if anyone wants to get it. It's on both Blu-ray and DVD. There's 26 shows per season. We scanned camera negative on all but three reels, and each show is three reels. So almost all of it is from the camera negative. We had the original push-pull audio elements to uh, pull the audio off of. They sound terrific. And we are doing the same on the second season, which is another 26 episodes. So we'll have camera negative on almost all of them and track neg on almost all of them too. And we'll also have um, some special features we're going to throw in there as well. So if you're an Abbott and Costello fan, this year is a landmark year for you to (laughs) start gearing up because we've got lots more coming down the pipeline. Now, the second season of the TV series, they kind of changed it around, right? What they were doing. Yeah. The, the first season really is more of a spotlight for them to do routines, you know, and they're slew storylines where they can somehow plug in the routines. Now, most fans, they like the first season better than the second season because the second season, they start going more towards the sitcom right. realm. And I like to say that they're really actually kind of two different shows with the same characters. Right. Uh, the second season, though, has its fair share of really great episodes in their own bizarre way. And I think um, folks like Jerry Seinfeld who are and uh, other comedians who are great fans, the late Gilbert Gottfried, who really loved the TV show, will tell you that although the first season is great, the second season is where it really goes off the rails. And they're just in this bizarro world of just horrible people that if you look at them the wrong way, they'll flip you on your, uh, on your head. Okay. A lot of sold. (laughs) There's a lot of good stuff in the second season. And again, it's going to look and sound phenomenal. Uh, I was just working on an episode the other day. You know, you can see every detail at this point. It's almost in a certain way, there's more detail being shown than there should have been at the time because they knew it was going to be shown on a little, you know, 12 inch black and white, NTSC monitor, but uh, they're they're very theatrical. They're a lot of fun. Uh, the The family always referred to them as the shorts, and I kind of agree with them. They they kind of play like little uh, Columbia two real versions of Abbott and Costello. All right, and then you're doing things that do not involve Abbott and Costello at all, and in fact involve 3D. I understand. Uh, yeah, going back to my old chops of 3D. Yeah. It's funny, you know. I'm now I'm the Abbott and Costello restoration guy, but I was the 3D restor. I would I would rather just be the Abbott and Costello and 3D restoration right. guy. But uh, yeah, 3D wise, we've got a bunch of great stuff coming up this year. We just put out a few titles. Um, we did a couple of kung fu films from the 70s. One's called Revenge of the Shogun Women, and then the other one's called Dynasty. And we also put out a pretty awful. 80s sci-fi film called Parasite with Demi Moore. Uh, we're heading back to our classic chops here right. this year. <laughs> um, upcoming next, 
we've got a feature from England, their only uh, stereoscopic feature from the 50s called The Diamond Wizard. 1954, stars Dennis O'Keefe, um, pretty great uh, crime film noir. I, I, I hate to use the term film noir because it really isn't. It's more of a crime thriller, has some sci-fi overtones. It's about a, uh, a scientist who gets kidnapped by a gang because he's come up with a, a machine that makes synthetic diamonds that are uh, untraceable from real ones. And Dennis O'Keefe's the good guy hot on their trail. Okay, so wait, I have to ask something here. So The Maze was not made in England? No. Okay. The Maze was an all-American production. It, yeah. it, it does feel like an English production, I, I have to admit. But, no, that was all Hollywood. That's all under William Cameron Menzies' purview. And uh, it's got a terrific cast, including some expats from England. But, believe it or not, that's a Hollywood production. It's more or less the cast, because it's not like the Scottish castle particularly convinced me. But I just thought from the cast and all, it kind of felt like... It was actually made in England. Uh, yeah, no, I like that a lot. And obviously David Lynch liked it a lot, too, because some, some key scenes from The Elephant Man seem to have their origins in the maze. Very much so. I know exactly the ones you're talking about. Um, it's, it's a very moody film. I was very happy to get that one done. And we were really uh, privileged to have the Film Foundation work with us on that one in particular. All right, so back to the Diamond... I'm sorry, Diamond what? The Diamond, Diamond Wizard. The Diamond Wizard, yeah. Although you had it right the first time. That's the British title, The Diamond. It's, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It was shot with a camera rig that had been created to shoot uh, 3D shorts for the Festival of Britain, which was put on in 51 and 52 where they had an ongoing cycle of 3D shorts that they would run in a movie theater there. So they were constantly making them. And uh, this one is uh, really well photographed. It's, it's a really pleasing film to watch. Uh, it reminds me of a lot of the films that Robert Lippert was making in England at the time. You know, just kind of cheap little quickie crime films where they would import one or two American leads. Right. You know, usually it was like, George Raft or Brian Donlevy or someone like that. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, crank it out. But they're clever films. They're made by uh, British filmmakers. So they're really tight. They're really well made. You got great technicians working on them. And in this case, the 3D is superb. And it hasn't been seen by anyone outside of the two World 3D Expos, the last two that we did in 2006 and 2012. So. This one will be a new one, I think, for just about everyone. How do you watch 3D these days? Because they're well, not really making 3D TV sets, per se. For people who already got on the 3D bandwagon, they don't have to worry about it. Right. Uh, monitors have been not manufactured for 3D since, I believe, 2017. Projectors are still being made with 3D capability. So if you're in the uh, market for a projector, uh, like an Epson, for example, I'm not endorsing them, but they're an example of a company that still makes 3D, you can still buy a 3D display in that way. Now, if you don't want to spend a lot of money on a projector, but you do want a clear Polaroid 3D or, you know, we call it both passive and active. Passive would be Polaroid, active would be shutter glasses that you have to sync with the TV. You can still find blowout prices on 3D sets used. 
So if you go up to Craigslist in your area and just look up 3D TV, I guarantee you'll find at least five listed. And they're all for blowout prices. So, you know, grab one now while the getting's good. Um, I suspect with James Cameron's Avatar 2 coming up soon that there will be a renewed interest in 3D displays. So we may see the resurgence of manufacturers because they've run out of their novelties at this point. Sure. So they're going to have to go back to other things. Now we've got HDR and Dolby Atmos. The standards for those are sort of met in place. So the next big thing that they have to figure out is 4K 3D. And I suspect that's just around the corner. In the meantime, for those of you who don't want to invest in any of that stuff, uh, starting this year, we've made it a policy now on all of our 3D releases to also include a red and blue anaglyph version. And we also throw in a couple pairs of glasses into each case. And so if you want to wait, you want to be on the fence, you don't have a 3D display, you don't want to spend the money on it, you still have an opportunity to watch the film in 3D. And we are using a proprietary system that actually makes it so that the anaglyph works, unlike a lot of releases where <laughs> you get a lot of ghosting and stuff. We've been right. spending a lot of time for many years figuring out how to do this. And then I'm pretty proud of the process. It looks great. Um, and then, of course, if you don't see 3D or whatever, you can buy the disc and all Blu-ray players, if it's not 3D, will default to flat. So you can watch the film flat if you want. I understand you have a title that a lot of people have been waiting for. I'm not quite sure oh, why, yeah. but... Well, it's a historical first. You know, everyone's heard of it. Not a lot of people have seen it. I wouldn't call it a great film, but I think, you know, people will probably enjoy it because of its cast. It's uh, the 1952... Uh, Arch Obler film, Buona Devil. And it yes. was the first feature that started it all. The first American color 3D feature. I have to put all those qualifiers in front, <laughs> but essentially it's the first 3D feature that uh, makes a difference because this was the film that started Hollywood on the idea that 3D was a financially viable uh, addition to their films. And it was made as an independent film by Obler in 52. It was originally called The Lions of Gulu. And it has a pretty great cast, Robert Stack, uh, Nigel Bruce, uh, Barbara Britton. It was shot in Ansco color, which was a Eastman color rival at the time. Um, they lasted, I'm not quite sure, all throughout the uh, 50s, I think. Um, and wasn't like Metro Color, wasn't it really East Ansco Color as well? No, Metro Color would be Eastman Color. Oh, okay. MGM did use Ansco Color for a few years, though. They used it in 53, 54, and 55. Films like uh, Kiss Me Kate, which was also shot in 3D, um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, uh, Athena, a bunch of their musicals, their Technicolor musicals, were shot on Ansco Color film but then printed by Technicolor. And Buona Devil was shot on Ansco Color. And then when he first released it, he released it on Thanksgiving weekend of 1952. It uh, originally played at the uh, Hollywood Paramount, which is now the El Capitan. And yeah. if you've ever seen that Life magazine photo of the whole audience with 3D glasses on. That's Buona Devil. That's Buona Devil. That's, that's at the Paramount. Made huge waves. I mean, big impression. Uh, this was post-Cinerama, 
by about a month. So most people had not seen Cinerama yet. And it had only been in a few cities at that point. And then it's pre-cinemascope and pre-widescreen and stereophonic sound. So the 3D angle was very uh, new to everybody, and it, and it was making a lot of news at the time. Uh, Obler struck a deal with United Artists to distribute it. They started distributing it in uh, February of 53. Hollywood just took note immediately. They said, this is going to be the next big thing. Uh, Jack Warner licensed the camera system that Obler had used. It was a camera called Natural Vision, and... Uh, shot their first 3D film, which was originally called The Wax Works, and by the time it was released in April, was called House, House of, Wax. of Wax. Columbia got on foot real quick. They uh, started putting a film noir called Man in the Dark with Edmund O'Brien in production. Uh, Paramount dusted off a rig that they had been messing with for at least a decade and started putting a film called uh, Sangaree into production with uh, Fernando Lamas and Arlene Dahl. We put that out through Kino Lorber a couple of years ago. And so Wanted Devil did very, 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 very well. Uh, it was definitely in the top 20 list of uh, box office gross that year. And it did start the whole 3D cycle. And it's a kind of a peculiar film. We're also going to be putting with it the film that originally ran with it in Hollywood, a little short called um, Time for Beanie, which has Beanie and Cecil, the Bob Clampett creations, right. Stan Freeberg's doing the voices, and Lloyd Nolan hosts it, and Shirley Teggy, Miss America, is in the film. And uh, we also get to meet somebody who claims to be an ophthalmologist telling you how 3D is great for your eyes. You don't know <laughs> if this guy was or not, but, you know, when you see it our way, 3D is good for your eyes. So he's not wrong. So that'll be coming out through Kino Lorber probably next, early next year, I think. Okay. We also have a reissue of a film that we own called uh, another Archobler film that we own called The Bubble. And we previously reissued, we reissued that about 10 years ago. Uh, that issue is out of print now, but that was the general release version of the film. We've since found the full roadshow version of the film, which runs about 15 to 20 minutes longer. So we're doing a restoration on that footage right now, and that will be out later this year, or early next year. And then the last project that we have on the operating table at the moment is another one that everybody has been clamoring for, and it's the greatest, worst 3D right. film of all time, <laughs> a little number called Robot Monster. Yeah. Um, a phenomenally mind-boggling film of, of every kind. Uh, it has such a peculiarly bad storyline and costumes and special effects and yet it has such a phenomenal 3d photography and score by uh, elmer bernstein which is like just a complete head scratcher i know he was blacklisted at the time and it's it's a really uh, fine score and and then a really strange sort of eclectic cast of hollywood folk that uh were either blacklisted or slumming it as they say, George Nader, of course, is the lead. 
Um, and he was famous, or I think rather infamous, for uh, getting outed early in his life. Um, and that sort of derailed his career. Uh, I think we, we had been mentioning earlier, previous to this conversation, the, the professor in the film is played by a, uh, a character actor by the name of John Mylong, who was born in the Ukraine. And uh, show, you know, what was the film that you were saying he showed up in? He's in Tonka of the Gallows, a Czech silent film that uh, we've talked about a few times on Nitreville. You can get a copy of it from Czech Republic. And it's a really nice, I mean, sort of like farm team version of Sunrise or something like that. I mean, quite a moving little film. But yeah, it's so odd that he then turns up 30 years later in, I mean, in Hollywood. Well, people went to Hollywood in the mid-century for usually obvious reasons. But, you know, that he turns up in things like Magnificent Obsession and he's in Robot Monster. Yeah, he. I just saw him the other day in a film really bad B movie from the early sixties called the mermaids of Tiburon. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's always playing a, a Teutonic scientist of some sort or a mid Eastern European scientist of some sort. But, you know, even in the forties, you see him in really bizarre little bit parts. And uh, so robot monster is sort of a, a juicy role for him. You know, he yeah. actually <laughs> has some dialogue and he gets to lead some scenes and things like that. Uh, yeah, very interesting career, that guy. Um, and then you have um, Claudia Barrett, who just passed away just earlier this year, unfortunately, which is too bad. I was kind of hoping she would get to see it. Um, at the 3D Expo in 2013, I believe it was 2013, we had uh, both of the kids from the film, Gregory Moffat and Pamela Paulson. They were there in person, so they got to see that. And like I said before, the uh, the 3D in this film is sort of like the raison d'etre for actually purchasing this thing because the photography in it is spectacular. Somewhat of a mystery too. We don't quite know what camera rig shot this. The credits say uh, true stereo at the start. And it's also the same credit that uh, is also in the other Al Zimbalist 3D film, Cat Women of the Moon. And we're pretty sure they rented somebody else's camera, but we can't figure out who exactly. Huh. And just stuck an, a name on it as if they had their own process. Right. We have one photograph of the camera in this large photo of the cast and crew. And it's just shrouded in duvetine. You know, it's like they clearly didn't want anyone to see <laughs> what the camera they were using was. Yeah, it could have had a, a big name painted on the side of it for all you know. So, Of course, yeah. Or, you know, anyone who was in the know would see what it was. Right. Oh, that's it, yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, we, we we have a we have it narrowed down to basically two different rigs that we figured out this could be, but uh, that's one of the mysteries to continue in the research. And I'm looking up the cinematographer. It's uh, Jack Greenhall. Looks like his name was. Um, does not appear to have any other particularly strong credits. I don't know. Is there is there a major Jack Greenhall film? No, Jack Greenhall photograph that film if if memory serves me uh his his credit were a lot of b films and a lot of lip, like lippert films and things like that you know, he was he was a cameraman for hire oh and he did the sort of monte cristo which was in super cinecolor correct 
Correct. Thus completing the uh, the, uh, circ- the circle on this episode. And, and, and you want to hear something really funny. There's one stock shot in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. It's the only color exterior in the entire film. The rest of it's shot on sound stages. And it's a shot of a carriage that has the princess in it being drawn by, by horse. And it's a stock shot from Sword of Monte Cristo. <laughs> and they actually found they had the same uh, uh, prop or uh, uh, production manager on both films. And this guy dug out the carriage that they used the year before in that film and use it for the interior shots for the, uh, for the feature itself. So that's a, a neat little bit piece of trivia. There are a number of people I have to thank too on this thing, because we had a huge crew of uh, folks that made it happen. Uh, of course, Bob Permanac and I both produced it and oversaw the whole project and <laughs> held its hand right. from, from birth to, to, to graduation. Um, we scanned it in 4K with prints that we had gotten from collectors. We also got prints from the BFI, uh, which made possible the uh, sepia sections at the start and the end complete. Library of Congress, we had uh, an A print that had almost all of the color stuff, uh, just had a few splices that we had to fill in and a few scratches here and there. There's actually a restoration demo on the disc that you can see. You can see how bad some of the elements were before we got to them. Um, but we definitely have to thank over at Library of Congress, um, Mike Michon, Rob Stone, George Williman. They all stepped up to the plate on this, made sure that we got this on time. Um, once we got it in our hands, I did some initial color grading on it to get it to where I wanted to. And then we brought it to Dave Northrup over at film media and, uh, film media, by the way, if you folks haven't, uh, checked out their website, I would check out film photography project. Uh, Mike Rosso runs that it's a company down in New Jersey that they do both scanning and restoration work and post work, but they also, sell uh film analog film equipment for anyone who's still shooting film they make it affordable they sell both still and motion picture film so um they were really great and helpful um paige davis over there was really great um and then thad komarowski did the cleanup work on the film i know we almost gave him a nervous breakdown on this one but the end (laughs) result was worth it i mean it was really bad and and I stepped in and even did some work on it myself. We had to do certain things like you'll see on the restoration demo, there was one shot that had a nice big emulsion scratch down the right side of the frame and painting it out wasn't an option. So we took a second print that we had that had an arc burn on the other side of the, of the print. And I actually lined it up and we did a split screen on it. You can't even tell it's uh, it's seamless. Uh, and Dave, Northrop helped us with that a great deal as well. Scott Jondrow, who's a guy who I've been working with for a while, he's up on Nitrateville, in fact. And one of the projects that we've had kind of backburned for a long time is doing a restoration of the original cut of the Cheney Phantom of the Opera. Scott's got a whole arsenal of the latest software. Uh, he really keeps his ear to the ground on this stuff. And we've been using a lot of artificial intelligence software on our latest releases. Uh, we were able to really dial down the graininess on this without, you know, scrubbing it. Um, 
And there's some really good image and Anson on here. And again, when you see the restoration demo, you'll see that. And uh, Ray Faola, who's also on Nitrate Bill, uh, great guy. He did an audio restoration on this that I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like hearing it for the first time once he got it done. And he had a lot of stuff to work with. Initially, we thought we were going to work with the, the track from the LFC print, but that was noisy. So we went to go to another track and uh, Ray really stepped up to the call of duty on this one. And, uh, and of course, David over at classic flicks, he has been very helpful in getting this Abbott and Costello stuff out. They put out the first season. They'll be putting out the second season of the show and uh, they'll be putting this out. Street date is tentatively July 12th, maybe subject to change a few days, depends on what the, the replicator does or doesn't do in the next sure. week, but uh, we're looking forward to it. One thing I wanted to ask about is, you know, it's one thing when movies are restored uh, by a studio that owns, you know, that owns the rights. So you know, like Warner Archive doing films that Warner owns. Um, and then, but somebody like you, I mean, much like we talked to Kit Parker a while back, it's all about finding what are the, what are the little forgotten films? What are the corners where something got left behind? Um, so yeah, tell me about how you go out and find projects like this to work on. I mean, some of them are pet projects. A lot of the time it comes down to watching a movie and going, eh, this doesn't look so good. You know, what? <laughs> right. could this look better? Could this look better? I know it could look better if the elements are there. Uh, the studio stuff, yeah, they've got the elements. They've got the preprint. Sometimes they don't. You'd be surprised. Um, and we've worked with studios in the past where they, they couldn't find something good on it. So we went out, and you got to know the collectors, and you got to know the archives, and uh, you got to have some money, of course. Um, and with sometimes the label that we distribute on can give us an advance, which is enough. We're pretty good at doing stuff on a slim budget. Uh, we've done a number of really successful Kickstarters lately, which I know some people sort of in, in the, in the studio and the archive world sort of, you know, their noses down on that. But um, for all essential purposes, the Kickstarters are just pre-orders for these discs. That's right. more or less what they're doing. If you submit more money to us, that helps the project out. That's gravy. And, and we put it where you can see it. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we treat the Kickstars more or less as a pre-order for these things. And it was a way of publicizing them as coming on the way. I mean, it gets people very much excited. So. And, and they've all been very successful. I mean, on Jack and the Beanstalk, I think we did over $50,000 and it's easier to go to the fans and say, Hey, listen, you want to see this get done? just give us a little piece of it, you know, a small percentage of it than rather than having to like, you know, go to some old widow of somebody and, you know, begging them for $150,000 and then having to go back a second and third time or whatever. With the swiftness of a deadly cosmic ray, the earth is invaded by indestructible moon monsters. Their ghastly mission, death for all humans. Astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind. Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors 
that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Fool humans, there is no escape. Jack and the Beanstalk will be released by Classic Flicks on July 26th. That's the new official date. A Kickstarter for the second season of the Abbott and Costello TV show will be announced later this summer, and the 3D titles we talked about will follow through the rest of this year and early next. You can keep track of all of this at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Jeffrey Spivak and Jack Feekston, and to Jackie Wilson at University Press of Kentucky. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. You know what I really want to see in 3D in recent ones? You're going to laugh when I tell you the title. Cloudy with a chance of meatballs, too. <laughs>